Thanks, Lex. <clears throat> Good morning. How you doing? My name's Matt. It's great to be with you here. Hey, question that we're all asking one another at the moment. Hey, what are you looking forward to for Christmas? What are you looking forward to for Christmas? You ask the little kids that, you ask my kids that, and they say presents, you know, immediately like that. Uh, I ask you that, and maybe you're thinking about, you know, the Christmas pudding with brandy butter. Anyone? No? Or the turkey, the ham? Yeah, getting some nods, not really. Um, the new tennis racket? Anyone? You ask, you ask us, and what's the first thing we talk about? It's, it's presents as well, isn't it? But a different kind of presence. It's the people you're going to be with. You say, I'm going to see my mom, my dad, my family, my cousins, my sisters, some friends. We're hanging out. It's the family. Um, that's what matters. Now, that's hope for a day. That's hope for Christmas Day. But hope for a lifetime comes from the same place. That's what this passage is telling us. The big idea of this little beautiful passage that read, uh, Lex read out to us is that hope has a name. Hope is personal as well. Hope for a lifetime is personal. Hope has a name. The big idea that we've seen in this passage, um, the big idea that comes out to us, hopefully you've seen it, is that God is with us in a person, the person of Jesus. God is with us in Jesus. And um, that's why we've called this uh, today's talk, Hope Has a Name. God is with, with us in the person of Jesus. Hope has a name. And I want to ask a couple of questions about this hope. This is the reason you can have hope, because it's personal, because God is with us in Jesus. I want to ask a couple of questions about that this morning. Those four on the screen. Why did God come to us? If God is with us in Jesus, why, why did he come? Secondly, um, why did it have to be God who came? Why, why God himself? Thirdly, how do, you, how do we know that Jesus is actually God? That's a good question. And then finally, what's it mean for us today? That's where we're going. Let's do this. Firstly, why did God come to us? What was his purpose? Why did God come? Well, in our Bible reading, we skipped over um, seemingly the boring bit. Um, we're in Matthew chapter uh, 1, but we missed over that boring bit, you know, the bit that you um, always skip over, that you never read. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's that list of names uh, right there in verses 1 to 17. Name after name after name after name. And I know it's boring. You know it is because you skip over it. Um, but what's significant about this family tree in Matthew? What's significant about these names is that all of these names are the kings of Israel and Judah. And this family tree, as it were, um, shows, it demonstrates that Jesus has legal claim to the throne of Judah through his adopted father, Joseph. That Jesus is born a king. That's what's being shown to us in these names. And Matthew actually says, well, he's not just any old king either. And he finishes with this term. He says, um, then there was Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Um, Jesus isn't just any old king, he's the Messiah. And the Messiah is a term that means the long promised king 
who would fulfill Israel's hopes and dreams of deliverance from oppression and finally bring about God's kingdom. Um, Jesus is the king they've all been waiting for. He's the hero, the anointed one. Um, But Matthew gets even more specific about who Jesus is and the purpose of Jesus' coming in our little passage. And Matthew tells us, actually, it's the angel who says to Joseph in the dream, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know, many people have funny ideas about Jesus, who he is and why he came. Uh, Most people are convinced that he came. Uh, If you're someone who takes history seriously, it's pretty plain to see that Jesus was a historical figure uh, who was born into our world, who um, lived in our world, who died, and who rose again. They're they're pretty convincing historical claims. Um, But most people are happy for him to sit in a little box when it comes to his purpose, who he was and what he came to do. Most people are pretty comfortable for him to sit in a box um, that is something like he was a good teacher. He had good things to say. Um, And it's true, he did. He probably said some of the best things ever said, love your enemies. I mean, it doesn't morally get any better than that. Uh, He had some healing powers. They're happy to put him in that box too. Yeah, it seems like he did some miraculous things. Heaps of people followed him, convinced about his kind of spiritual, supernatural power, sure. Um, But actually, at the most important moment, when a messenger from heaven speaks to Joseph and tells him, you know what, it's okay, you can take Mary as your wife, she hasn't committed adultery, we'll talk about that in a moment, um, but actually, and the angel speaks to us and says, um, tells us about who Jesus is and why he came. The angel does not say he's going to be a really great teacher. He's going to put out some cracking podcasts. You've got to download them. Uh, he's going to rewrite philosophy and psychology and all the other social sciences. Uh, he's, he's going to be famous. In fact, he's going to be super genuine, super nice. Lots of people will like him. No, God's messenger, God says, give him a name that means God saves because God's going to save through him. That's what he's going to do. He will save his people from their sins. I don't know whether you've ever wondered, you know, why did God choose the name Jesus? Um, Jesus is just simply the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. But Joshua means... Yahweh saves. Yahweh is Israel's personal name for God. This is their God. And it means he delivers, he saves. Yahweh is salvation. Now, I've, I've named a couple of kids myself. Here's two kids that I've had the privilege of naming. And when a parent comes to name a child, there's a couple of things a parent thinks about. Um, the first should be, can other people say their name? I have failed on both accounts. I'm sorry for you. Um, even when we spell it. It's hard to say. Um, The second thing you think about is the meaning of their name. You know, what do you want people to think about when they think about your child? And you use a name to do that. You know, who's that name going to remind that person, the the friends and family of and the people around them of? Um, Who who do you want that child to, when they think about their name, who do you want them to be reminded of? What do you want them to be reminded of? Uh, We named our child after an obscure theologian and a Viking. Go figure. Um, But think about this for a moment. God is naming this child. 
You know, God steps into Joseph's life. He interrupts Joseph's sleep, heaven forbid, um, to say one thing, really, to say, hey, buddy, I know you'd love to name your child, your adopted son, Mary's child. I know you'd love to do that. That's your right in Jewish custom and culture. That's your right. But actually, I'm, I'm pretty protective of a name. I'm pretty jealous of a name. I've got a really good one stored up because I care about what people think about who he is and why he's come. I care about people knowing the reason I sent him. And so God calls him Jesus, which means God saves, I will save. And interestingly, Matthew's first readers probably would have thought of two particular people in the Old Testament who had the name Joshua, two really significant people. The first is um, Israel's leader when they first entered the promised land, Joshua. Remember, he walked around the walls of Jericho, that was that guy. He took them into the promised land. And the other one was when they came out of captivity, out of Babylon, they had a high priest called Joshua. And so that gives us a bit of a taste of the kind of person God's thinking this person's going to be, God's plan for this person to be, our leader into the true and better promised land, our mediator, our true high priest between us and God. But actually, um, the angel doesn't explicitly refer to either of these people. The angel explains the significance of the name by referring to a song. It seems that God has a song in his mind when he names his child. Not a bad idea. And he has a particular lyric. It's Psalm 103 verse 8. And it's this, Israel, the Lord himself will save you from all your sins. That's what the angel says. He's quoting a song. Israel, the Lord himself will save you from all his sins. That's what, when, when you meet Jesus, God wants people to see, just as you know his name, from that moment onward, uh, this is about God himself saving his people from their sins. And the first thing to notice there, actually, this is the first little truth that comes up in our passage, is that people need rescuing. We need rescuing. You and I need saving from our sins. Why did Jesus come? The answer is we need saving from our sins. You know, this is, this is the, Christian, the, Christ, the Christmas message. You know, we've been saying um, the Christmas story disrupts the, optimis, the optimism of this world, that you've got this optimism of this world. And says, actually, you can't save yourself. Things are dark. They're really dark. And this is what we mean by that. Humans are the problem. And you can't save yourself because you're the problem. Yeah, you know, Merry Christmas. You know, this is the beginning of the Christmas message. There's hope. But it's... It's you can't save yourself, and you are the problem. That's why you can't save yourself. You know, it's not right here in this text, but let's take a little wander down the biblical road of what it means that God will save you from your sins. The Bible has kind of two things to say about this. The first is you need saving from sins in the present. You need saving from the consequences of your sin in the present, and the consequences of sin in the present. And secondly, you need saving from the consequences of your sin in the future. That's what the Bible says. First, uh, the Bible says, actually, um, the biblical idea is that sin is the basic cause of every calamity. 
Sin is the basic uh, cause of every suffering in our world. The, the reason why there's any suffering in your life, any suffering in our world, is because of sin. Um, what this means is, is whenever you or I or the people before us or the people after us, whenever any human has thought, I know how to live life better than my creator. That's the definition of sin. And, and followed through on that. I know how to live better than my creator and follows through on that. Then they start breaking things. They, they cause havoc. They cause chaos. They cause calamity. They... They twist the world. And as a result, um, we suffer. And sometimes your suffering has nothing to do with your own personal sin. That's obvious. Suffering comes from other people and other places. Uh, you know that. You've experienced that. You're not always responsible for the suffering you experience. Um, Adam kickstarted the problem. He disobeyed God. You remember this? Because he said... I want to do life my way. Um, I know better than you, God, and so I'll do life my way. And he got exactly, he wanted to be independent from God. He got exactly what he wanted. He was cut off from God's presence. Um, he, was, he was kicked out of the garden. And ever since, humanity's experienced uh, decay and death in the world because of him. But also, humanity has followed in his footsteps. We've done the same thing as Adam did. He's our forefather and we are like him. And this is the reason there's exploitation in the world, corruption. This is why there's cheating and stealing and lying and mistreatment, abuse, a greed, bullying, a war. The world is full of sin and it suffers under the weight of it. It's broken by it. And before we move on, we've got to point out what the text points out, which is um, God will save you from your sins. And so, it's, you know, God doesn't just blame a depersonalized institution, the man, a particular group, a, uh, a particular organization, a political persuasion, a gender, a power structure. You know, God doesn't say to his people here, oh, it's okay, Rome's the problem, I'm going to overthrow Rome and save you from Rome. Um, who does God save them from? He saves them from themselves. He doesn't just blame your parents or your friends for your problems. Um, you and I are at the heart of this text, at the heart of the problem. Did you know that your sin, your own rejection of God creates problems in your life for you? I mean, you probably know that. Uh, most sin in our life backfires on us. It ends up hurting you. And the truth is, you won't just be punished for your sins. You are often right now punished by your sins. There's a great little illustration for this. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Harry Potter lately, you know, living the dream. This is what you do when you live the dream, right? You read Harry Potter. And um, there's this great moment where Harry um, is um, caught, teased by his arch rival, Draco Malfoy. You know, Draco. And uh, Ron, Harry's best friend, um, wants to get back, wants to take revenge on Draco. And so he pulls out his wand and he does most of his schooling with a broken wand. And uh, he pulls out a, a wand and tries to do a spell on Draco. And he's like, abracadabra, eat slugs. And poof, um, the spell doesn't work. It backfires on him 
And for the rest of the afternoon, he is vomiting up slugs. I really hope this works. Yes. It's disgusting, isn't it? It's this little insight into life. Um, When you do wrong by others, when you hurt others, when you don't do as God wants you to do to others, when you don't live how he wants you to live, in this case, you're not compassionate or forgiven or offer forgiveness, you eat slugs. A sinful life is eating slugs. And actually, you know it's much worse than that. But the point is, I'll stop that for you, right? Somebody just did. Uh, The point is, you know, you get punished by your sins and you add them up daily. You know, maybe there's 10 a day. You add that up weekly, there's hundreds. You add that up over a year, maybe there's a thousand. And, And they, slugs begin to rule your life. They own you. They overwhelm you. They take over your life. That's the tyranny of sin that we all need to be saved from. And that, of course, is not all. Uh, One day the Bible says you'll be judged. I will be judged. We will all be judged, held accountable for our sin before a righteous God who is righteously angry at our sin. And um, the appropriate, the right punishment for not living a holy life is death. And we need forgiveness from God to be saved from his wrath. And so we need to be saved. And so that's the first point. I won't do that again to you. And so uh, you need saving from your sin. You can't fix the problem because you are the problem. We need someone to step into our world. And that's why we need God. Why did God have to come to be with us? That's the second question here. Why did God have to come? Um, The virgin birth here, or better put, the virgin conception, is referred to four times throughout this text. I'd love to work through um, them all in detail with you and go through this story, but um, we're running out of time. But four times um, this virgin conception is mentioned by Matthew. I mean, he's serious about this baby being different, being not just fully man, but also fully God. I'm aware, of course, while I talk about this, that... um, our eyes glaze over because it's like our minds go into overdrive. They overheat. And we're so familiar with this idea that at Christmas God becomes man that, you know, my hope for this sermon is that I can just try and like show you, cast a different light on it to give you something different about it. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, the English novelist and playwright, once lamented, the incarnation is the most dramatic thing about Christianity and indeed the most dramatic thing ever um, in our world But if you tell people so, they'll stare at you in bewilderment. So I'm expecting for the next five minutes for just to have plain stares of bewilderment. I'm okay with that. But let's think about this, the virgin birth for a moment. Um, You know, Matthew is very clear that um, it's it's a miracle. It's a virgin conception. Um, She's so clear. He's he's so clear about it. Um, Four times it, it happens, I think, Probably the most significant, or I'll come to that in a moment. Probably the most significant is, um, you know, we get the fact at the beginning in verse 18, we're just told Mary was found to be with a baby from the Holy Spirit. Um, then in verse uh, 21, or verse 20, the angel says uh, the virgin will conceive. 
And then we're told that actually God had said it. He promised it 700 years before. But then what I love is Joseph gives his own personal testimony. I'm not sure whether I have it here, but it's in verse 25. I don't have it here. Have a look at verse 25 in your Bible. Um, It says there, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. Now, how would we know that unless Joseph told us? Like Joseph said, I did not consummate this marriage. I took her in, but we did not sleep together. Uh, Joseph has told Matthew that. And this is very serious. You know, before you um, think these people are idiots, you know, this can't happen, science has proven this, just plain science, they knew how the birds and the bees worked, right? I mean, Joseph knew. He, he had no other reason for explaining this, and so he plans on divorcing her. Engagement was much more serious in, in their custom. Uh, we'll leave that for another time. But he's, he's going to divorce her because he knows. He's not an idiot. And this is no allegory or metaphor. Um, you know, Joseph decides to divorce her quietly. Now, you might still be wrapping your head around this, but I want to throw a bigger um, bomb into the room for a moment. Uh, a bigger miracle that blows this one out of the water, and that's what's on the screen. Um, in the middle of this text, the angel says, the virgin will give, uh, conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You can believe in a virgin birth. You can believe in a man who can walk on water. You can believe in a man who can turn water into wine. You can believe a man who heals diseases by the thousands. You can believe in a man who can rise from the dead if you can believe he's, he's God, right? I mean, that is what is plastered on the front door of the Christian message. And it's so important, you can't walk past it. Jesus is God come to town. He's fully human. He's God with us. Think about that for a moment. Um, I had the privilege, just this photo was taken on Wednesday down at uh, my favorite cafe down the road. I got to hold this baby in my arm who was 28 days old. You know, being a dad of two, and, and they're a few years on now, I thought, I, I got this. I asked the mum for the child, and I had, um, had the baby in my arms. And about 120 seconds later, I gave the baby back. Because I, I became all sweaty and nervous because you just realize this thing is so fragile. I mean, not to mention the, the wriggling and the squirming, the neediness, but they're just so delicate and fragile. You know what it's like if you've ever held a child. They're so dependent, so small, so unaccustomed to life outside the, the womb, so needy to think that the Almighty became dependent The powerful became powerless. The all-knowing became a child who had to learn to walk and talk. He who is bigger than the universe, bigger than all the billions of galaxies, um, you know, became contained within this little skin figure of three and a half kilos. He who is beyond comprehension uh, became someone you could hold in a forearm. You know, God became man, but the emphasis actually right here is not just the incarnation, but the purpose of the incarnation, that God is with us. You know, why did God himself have to come? Well, because it means a new beginning for our world. It actually can mean a new beginning for our world. We love new beginnings. 
if you didn't pick it up in the introduction, I'm looking forward to a new tennis racket for Christmas because it means a new beginning for my tennis game. Uh, Toby last week, talking about his long service leave, said, I'm looking forward to having a new beginning when I come back. I'm looking forward to going away, being refreshed. And he's hoping for a new beginning for whatever God has for us as a church when he comes back. But here's the thing. If Jesus really is God with us, there's the opportunity of a whole new world, a whole new creation, a whole new humanity. That's why it had to be God with us. Because someone who is different can come into our world and change the system. He can live differently and do differently. Someone outside of us. You know, the first readers would have been clued in on this at the very first sentence in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. And that word birth in Greek is uh, the word genesis. And it's the word used way back at the beginning of the Bible when it talks about Adam and God forming Adam. And so the first readers would be like, hang on a sec, this is a new creation, a new beginning, a second Adam. And this is what the New Testament writers pick up about Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. I mean, he was just a man. But the last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. He gives life, new life. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are they those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. God coming to be with us uh, means Jesus opening a door that didn't otherwise exist. That you can become like you were meant to be. You can become like God. That leads us to um, our third question. You know, well, how do we know actually that Jesus is God? This is important before we move on. How do we know that Jesus is actually God? Well, the answer is we know it from the evidence. We know it from the evidence of his life. Um, you know, if he is God, he's going to be doing stuff that only God can do, right? I mean, we can't just have the message from an angel. We've got to see it in the flesh. And this is what happens. There's a great moment in, um, later in Matthew's Gospel where actually one of Jesus' childhood friends, John the Baptist, um, is put in prison. And so he hasn't, he's heard a bit of Jesus' teaching. He hasn't seen what Jesus is up to. And so he asks his own disciples to go and find him and ask, um, should we look for anyone else? And where am I? Oh, yeah. Go back. Woohoo! This is fun. I didn't put it in here. I'm just going to read it to you uh, before we get to point four. And he says, um, uh, he's John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? This is Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see, the, the evidence. He says, the blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have skin diseases are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed. How, how do we know Jesus is God with us? 
um, Jesus was the beginning of the new beginning. He kick-started what one day he will come back and we look forward to at Christmas. One day he will come back and finish the bringing of God's kingdom, the rescuing of humanity from the tyranny of sin, once and for all defeating death and decay. You know, whenever God is with someone in the Old Testament, it means God's there to help them and to protect them, to guide them, to save them. In, in Jesus in the New Testament, we have that on a whole new level. We have God with us to save us, to give us what otherwise we could not have by ourselves, a new creation. And so the final thing to say is, well, what, what does this mean for us? What does God with us mean for us even right now today, for us in this room? There's this cool little thing um, that the old commentaries pointed out to me uh, that if you read the Bible super closely, you will see this. But when Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, he gets it wrong. When, when Isaiah 7, 14 said this, it said, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Uh, the idea is, you know, he'll be named by his parents. She will call him, he will call him Emmanuel. They'll, he'll call him God, God with us. It's singular. You will call him Emmanuel. When Matthew writes what the angel says, he says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Uh, it's not a slip of the pen. Uh, the, the point is, you know, Jesus was not a, a baby for one family. Jesus wasn't Mary and Joseph's kid. I mean, hopefully you have this by now this morning. Mary and Joseph did nothing to conceive Jesus. He is not their child. And they had to figure this out the hard way, right? You remember when they go to Jerusalem, he's like 10 or 11 years old, and they leave Jerusalem, and he's, they realize a day having left Jerusalem, he's not with them. They go back, they find him in God's temple. They say to Jesus, hey, what the heck? You're meant to be with us. Like, you belong to us. And he goes, hang on, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Like, you're not, I'm not a carpenter's son. I'm not your son. I'm God's son. And I'm here, Jesus said, for anyone who will take me into their family. I'm here for anyone who will give me the name Jesus, anyone who will call me God with us. That's who Jesus is for. Anyone who will name him Savior. Jesus is for us. All you have to do is name him Savior, invite him into your life, let him in your life. Hope has a name. It's Jesus. If it's not already obvious, I'm a tennis tragic. Right? I think I've mentioned tennis a few times already today. One last time. Um, I will never use this, sta this stage to throw someone under the bus. That is not what this pulpit is for. But, <laughs> um, but I, I will speak to this person's um, professional decisions to make this point. It was all over the news yesterday as I was driving the car. But Nick Kyrgios has pulled out of the Australian Open um, due to injury again. And um, I think Nick Kyrgios is a, a metaphor for humanity at the moment. He's a metaphor for human society, for even our cultural moment. Nick is this guy who has so much potential. I've seen him in Zetland shops, right? I was a bit scared he was going to walk into the room today. Um, this is why I'm not throwing him under the bus. I'm throwing a professional decision that he made under the bus. Um, 
He's six foot four. He's huge. He looks like he's been genetically modified to be the perfect tennis player. I mean, his arms are gigantuan, if that's even a word. He's huge. Uh, his physique just screams Grand Slam titles. Here's the thing. He's never won one. He's come close. He's never won one. He's been racked by injury. He played just one game last year. And it's debatable, I'm sure. But I think the most annoying thing about Nick Kyrgios is that he refuses to have a coach. He refuses to have a coach. Um, I'm going to get it on a bit of a hobby horse. It's such a shame. This guy could be so good. But he refuses to let anyone into his life to show him his mistakes, show him how to hit a ball properly, show him how to swing his racket, show him where to be on the court, tell him right from wrong. He could be amazing. But it's so unlikely that he'll reach his potential. He's been quoted as saying he'd like to do things his own way, prefer to play on his own instincts rather than having help from a coach. Here's the thing. There's someone who cares about you winning more than you care about yourself winning. There's someone who cares about you being victorious more than you care about yourself being victorious. Um, but you need to invite him in. You need to name him coach of your life. You need to listen to him, listen to what he has to say to you. You have to let him take control. And God's far better than a coach, right? He loves us and he went to infinite lengths to be with us. God became man. And then he went to infinite lengths to save us. That man died as a substitute in your place, taking the judgment of God upon himself to save you from your sin so you might live forever. And you can either say, no thanks, I don't need that. I don't need a coach. And you don't need a name a savior. Well, there's a different approach. There's another way. I'm going to ask the band up because we're going to sing. Uh, but I mentioned Psalm 130 before. And I'm going to read it as a prayer for us in closing. It's a great way to end our time reflecting on this passage together. Um, Psalm 130 is where that, you know, because he will save his people from his sins, that quote comes from. And it's actually a song that people would have sung as they came to church. It's called a song of sense. Uh, and it's perfect because this, um, it's this individual lament. It's, it's a passionate expression of sorrow and grief of saying, God, I need help. I need saving. A willingness to say sorry to God. And the psalm is geared towards helping us uh, to see ourselves not as a, a perfect people that don't need help, but as a forgiven people who need a saviour and whose only right to come into God's presence lies in God's mercy. The ideal Israel, the psalmist says, is a people where every single member um, recognizes and acknowledges his or her dependence on God's grace and mercy. And church is a place where people come and say, I'm not perfect, I need saving, and I'm calling on the name of Jesus. There is hope in a name, the name of Jesus. Let me pray. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. 
Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen. Let's sing.